ora, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Anna Clark. Anna is a Blake ambassador and geneticist. Kia ora, Anna. Kia ora. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I want to talk to you about genetic technologies, but before we get into that and how they can be used as conservation tools, I'm keen to talk about your experience as a Blake ambassador the other week. Uh, you guys have just been at Burwood working on the Takahe Recovery Program. What, what were you guys doing um, as part of that Takahe Recovery work? Yeah, cool. So, yeah, we were down at Burwood, which is um, near Tiano. Um, and one of the main projects that we were working on while we were there was to do the annual DOT 200 trap rebate and recalibration. So we went round about 200 um, traps and sort of emptied them of rats and mustelids um, and rebated them. Um, so with your standard egg and rabbit jerky um, and then also um, re calibrated the trap so this is to sort of discriminate between um, rats and potentially mice that could be getting into the trap which don't directly sort of threaten take survival. Is, is that site, there's a predator free fence isn't there or, or some of the take roaming freely as well? Yeah, uh, no so they're all enclosed with predator proof um, fences um, and around the perimeter of those fences we've got traps um, laid out just to sort of control any pests from getting inside, um, but also if any do manage to get inside, um, to catch them at the perimeter. And are they trying to create a bit of a halo around that area as well? And are there other, is there other wildlife in the, in the area or is it just strictly focused on, on Takahe recovery within the fence? So yeah, it's quite, it's quite cool because it's sort of a predator-proof fence. Um, there's one really big pen and um, there's quite a bit of like trapping that goes on in there. And while we were there, we actually saw, you know, the impact and the benefits that are going for other species um, in there. So that we saw a couple of tomtits, um, some robins, and we also saw a New Zealand falcon, a kirirea, um flew over. So yeah, it's sort of a bit of ecosystem restoration going on as well as protecting the take populations that are there. It's, yeah, super cool. And one of the amazing things is, you know, the, the Takei was uh, presumed extinct, I think, in the 1940s. And then they found one in, uh, in the Murchison Mountains. And since then, the recovery, I think that there were over 400 Takei now. Yeah, yeah, just over 400. Yeah, yeah and so awesome. And one of, one, of the, one of the big things is from once they've been... Um, well, once they have some of the, the, the chicks, right, they, they have a few other sites now that they're starting to grow those populations in as well, aren't they? Yep, absolutely. Yep. And they got, yeah, the breeding pairs mainly at Burwood, and then those are sort of sent or translocated to other areas around the country, um, sites where public can view them, so eco sanctuaries primarily, um, such as Orokanui down here in Dunedin, um, and also, yeah, offshore sites that are sort of have intensive predator management. One, one thing, I, I didn't realise this until a few weeks ago actually, was that they depend on the supplementary feed. We can't quite leave them to fend for themselves yet. Why, why do they need that top up or why do we need to give them that supplementary feed? Um, just to keep their condition, I guess, um, optimal um, and get them so that they are like, I guess, 
when they go into breeding, make sure they're in optimal conditions so that they actually can produce egg and produce um, young. Um, and also the, it was really cool at Burwood to experience the behavior training that they do to teach the birds to how to forage in the winter. So normally takahe sort of eat tussocks and grass species, but during the winter when in the mountains those species are covered in snow, the takahe sort of have to go back into the forest or to the perimeter edge. And there's a fern that grows there called hypolepsis and there's a behavior that they've evolved where they're able to identify the fern and dig for these really nutritious rhizomes that are just beneath the surface. And that provides a really good food source like during the cold winter months. Are they, so, I mean, we know, we know that they are kind of subalpine tussock birds. It's just kind of crazy seeing them walking around in the snow, but did they once exist down to the coast as well? Or do we know much about the distribution of the birds? I'm not too sure on the distribution. Um, we definitely know that there was a North Island species of takahe, um, but that went extinct. I'm not quite sure when. Um, so we've just got the South Island species now. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting question that could be answered with some um, ancient DNA technology. So I need, I need to talk to, to Lockie, who was the other, the Black Ambassador with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. we we'll have, we'll have to talk to Lockie <laughs> about that one. And I mean, one of the amazing things in, in a lot of these um, birds and in this sort of restoration has is, is been the, this new ambitious predator-free goal. Um, and, and for those who are listening that don't know, so the predator-free goal is about trying to eradicate all of the, the mammalian pests, so the, the rats, the stoats and the possums uh, from New Zealand by 2050. And Anna, one of the, the current challenges is that to do to achieve this goal with the current technology, it's almost far too resource intensive. And so if, if we can eradicate maybe half of the animals with the traps and the poisons that we use today, we might, we might be able to hold the line, but we wouldn't be able to get rid of the really smart and creative mammalian pests. Is that, is that a fair kind of assumption to say? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, so I've been, yeah, in pest control for but over 10 years now and it seems like the trap the trapping systems and the poison systems they are they're, they've just played such an incredible component of controlling these pest species like in the past and sort of currently but they're seen as control systems not eradication systems so over time you sort of get the animals that sort of become um, like trap shy um, as such and avoid going into traps um, and then also bait shy so like if they see something new they'll just like avoid it and that is one of the biggest challenges with an initiative like predator free 2050 where you're wanting to get those last individuals and if you haven't got something that's going to mop them up that's a pool of resistance that they'll essentially just bounce back, um, particularly with species like rats, which have a really high uh, reproductive capacity um, and like very short like generation time um, and they'll just yeah come back um, after these initial efforts. 
Yeah, what, what is the, I think you said the number in your TED talk, but what is the exact number? So between, if you had two, two rats, how many offspring can they produce within, uh, within a year or whatever the number is? <laughs> yeah, so the, well, this is totally theoretical. This is from like breeding in lab where they like have no limits on resources. Um, so yeah, two rats can go to a million in like 18 months. Wow. Um, and this is probably based off the Norway rat, which can produce litters up to about 20, I think. Um, and then, like, it's, I mean, rats, like, they, so they have gestation time of, like, two weeks, um, and then they give birth to the young, and another three weeks, their daughters um, could be ready to have a litter. And so... Very short cycle. And so when, and when that happens, obviously, you get this explosion of, of rats, and then they are going for it with the eggs and the chicks and even some of the smaller birds, aren't they? The adult birds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they'll go, we've got um, footage of um, them taking out like sort of rock wren up in the alpine zone, um, going in, eating the eggs, um, small birds. And we've also uh, got evidence um, showing that they also attack seabirds, um, the Norway rats. Yeah. And, and, and one of the other things, that um, that I think is is really interesting is when we have these mast years, there's effectively a, a, an additional boost of food, right? So how does how does that work? We just have this food explosion, and then, and then yeah, then they all yeah. breed, and then they have more offspring. Is that kind of how it works? Yes, yeah. So the, this is an additional challenge with I guess predator free twenty fifty. You know, currently or in the past, we haven't had these sort of irregular or regular bursts of um, mast years. So normally it happens, I don't know, I think maybe like the mega mast years where over 50% of our beach forest um, produces large quantities of seed. Usually only happens once or twice a decade. Um, so that's increasing in frequency um, due to the variable climate and the variable temperatures in the summer that we, we're having. Um, and so these explosion, so the beach forest essentially produce a whole bunch of um, flowers in the spring and that's a huge food resource for rodents um, and it causes an explosion in the numbers um, and then you get an additional explosion in the autumn when the seed drops um, and following these rodent explosions you also get this um, increase in mustelid and predator numbers that um, feed on the rodents um, and so it's a bit of a cycle. So the rodent numbers go up, the stoats and ferrets and weasels go up, um, and then that's sort of maintained. And then there's a crash in the following spring where the rodents sort of um, are like dying out because the seeds have rotted or they've germinated. Um, and then you've got some rats like turning to native species for food sources. And then you've also got this high stoat population, which is also gonna have to find um, food and that's when um, sort of our native species are going to really take a whack um, and so it's interesting you bring that up because last year was actually a, a mega mass I think um, so our forests uh, have currently have high populations of rats um, and stoats right now and that's what we were seeing at Burwood so a majority of the traps that were around the beach forest had ship rats in them so, so you guys were you guys were finding a lot of yeah. of rats on on when you you're checking those traps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and one of the the challenges is you know there's a lot of these new technologies. There's talk about you know different lures and using artificial intelligence to identify um, some of these species and then have sort of targeted poison and 
and these are in development but they haven't been created yet but one of the other things that that you've been looking at is using some genetic technologies as a, as a potential tool as well i think probably to to set the scene um because the, the, this can get kind of technical how does uh gene editing work or, or in, in essence or what 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 is the initial kind of step to look at using uh, some of these genetic tools before we kind of get into how, how they can be applied? Yep, so gene editing. So the main one um, is CRISPR. I'm sure a lot of um, people have sort of heard it being thrown around since it sort of came out in like uh, 2012, 2014. Um, so essentially it's um, a homing systems. It's like you a pair of scissors um, and then it's those scissors are guided um, by a specific um, sequence and it takes it to a specific part in the genome that you want to um, replace or a specific part of the DNA um, and it's able to cut at that site and you can replace it with a new version of the gene that you've cut um, or you can introduce a mutation to disrupt the function of that gene um, and so that sort of basic um, premises. It's probably a bit easier to explain with visuals. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's basically this gene editing is more so targeted changes to the genetic material as opposed to the broad mutagenesis systems that we've used in the past um, where we've bombarded genetic material with chemicals or radiation to randomly induce mutations. Yeah, so, so the key difference is that this is not a random change. It's very targeted and controlled, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's the main thing, is that it's, it's controlled. You can custom design the changes that you'd like to make. Um, but the important thing is that you can also review the changes that you've made. So you can go back through, you can sequence the um, target genetic material and you can go back through and you can make sure that you haven't made any other changes um, at any other location and you can make sure that the change that you made was the one that you wanted to make. And, the, and they've done some work, well they've done quite a lot of work with this using mosquitoes initially, haven't they? And then how much uh, work has happened and have they done much with, with mammals and, and other animals as well, rats in particular? or? Yep, so um, a majority of this research has been done in insects and yeast um, just because they're very quick breeding um, and you can see, um, I guess, the dynamics of these systems over um, quite a long, a short period of time, but like multiple generations of that species. Um, there's not that much work done on mammals yet. We're still sort of um, learning how, I guess, our approach to um, implementing these systems in mammals. mammals. Um, so the first gene drive actually, um, or sort of I guess gene drive system, not with eradication purposes, was sort of developed, I think it was about two years ago, um, and they got, they got um, it was a really good foundational study to build off. Um, and so since then we've kind of been, um, I guess solving these minor technical issues that um, that first drive system um, raised. And and one thing, so first we have to sequence the genome of whichever animal 
bidders that we're looking at. And I think they just recently did the stoat and they've, they've done the rats already, haven't they? But maybe not the possum or, or have they done all of the, the mammalian pests now? Yep. Um, yep. So we've got um, possum, stoat and shipwreck genome. Um, we've got, it's really cool. We've got a New Zealand shipwreck um, genome. So that was sequenced by collaboration between New Zealand and um, some couple of international groups. Um, and then, yeah, we've got the possum genome as well, but that's yet to be just fully characterised, but I think that's in the pipeline for the next couple of months. Yeah, and so once once that foundation is there, then what the the approach is, and you'll be able to explain this far better than, than I can, when, when you guys are looking for certain pieces or certain genetic material to modify, what are the things that you guys are, are looking for? And then how is that used to um, disrupt or, or create infertility or, or, or sort of slow down the, the reproductive rate of, of these animals? Yeah, absolutely. So that's my research. So that's right up my alley. <laughs> um, so specifically, um, we look at um, some of the model species. So we've got a lot of information on fertility um, that has been modelled in mouse studies. Um, so my research has been going through looking at um, mice that have had specific regions of the DNA removed or replaced or mutated. Um, and the result of that is some kind of sterility. So maybe a male specific sterility or female specific sterility. And one of the main things we're looking for is genes that are directly correlated with sterility but don't cause any other like sort of off-target effects. So they don't cause some kind of um, disease in the body, don't cause a developmental defect. Um, so really honing in on that infertility bracket. Um, I think that's the most humane way to go about this. Um, thinking in terms of like social license and trying to create something that's really humane. And so, and to do that, your how, how can you test or, or, or how much modeling or how much can you do to kind of check if there is a, a um, mutation or something that, that forms after, or, or if, if that has a, sorry, not a mutation, if there's other connections or other links with, with, that, um, with that gene? With that gene? Um, so yeah, if you've knocked out the gene, so you've removed its function, um, you want to produce um, young, that, so a litter that, has doesn't have that gene and you look to see if there's biases um in the sex of that litter so that you can make sure that like it's not affecting like um some of those sex specific um, development pathways that are crucial for viability um and then you look at survival rates up until adulthood you compare the development with a control group so like the ones that haven't had that gene knocked out um, and then you also you're looking at the behavior um, and then once they reach um, a sexually mature stage you're going to be testing their reproductive capacity and for these genes where they have a sex specific effect on fertility um, you'll find that the sex that you're targeting will not be able to reproduce um, so they're effectively sterile but there's no other process that has been sort of knocked down in their body Another way to do it is look at gene activity. Um, so 
you normally um, the activity of a gene is localized to the tissues or the structure in the body where that gene plays a major role um, so you'll often find if these genes are you know specific to the structure of sperm their activity will be restricted to sort of a male reproductive system and so if, if that's the case and the offspring are infertile how how many generations or, or, or i guess do we have to release we have to, we have to release some of these rats back into nature and then they eventually we get to a point where there's no longer any male offspring or, or what, what do we sort of anticipate that looks like or, or how long do you think that takes to, to achieve that last part? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of different systems. Um, it depends on what system you're using. Um, I think probably the easiest one to understand is the, the gene editing system that uh, essentially means that males only produce male sperm. So it disables the female sperm. So you get these males that pass on this gene to their like male offspring. Obviously, they're only going to produce males, um, and they like produce like continue it throughout generations. Um, in terms of how we'd go about doing it, we'd initially need to use our current um, strategies, so trappings and poisons, to bring that population, the standing population, down um, to sort of a low level because introducing more individuals to an environment. Um, if we were to do it right now, um, these individuals would probably be outcompeted by the ones that are already occupying resources. Um, and I guess a timeline for that would be totally dependent on the number of individuals um, in that standing population. Um, and there's probably quite a bit of complex modeling that would have to go on um, with that. Um, in mind and I guess it's dependent on species again um, so rats are probably be removed or like be able to be eradicated a lot quicker because they're really fast breeding whereas something like possums you know their generation time is a lot longer we're looking at years um, and so that's one of the things I guess with this kind of tech um, that's banking on reproductive capacity it may not be feasible for species like possums um, just because they're not quick breeding enough. Um, and, and that's specifically in that, in that predator-free 2050 timeline. So if we're aiming for like predator-free 2100, <laughs> is that even a thing? 2100, <laughs> then that potentially could be feasible. But um, yeah, lots of different complex interacting um, factors. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that in terms of the timeline for, uh, you know, slower breeders like a possum. So that adds another problem. Are there other, um, are there other potential technologies that we could use for possums or is it that same because it would be, you would need the, the, the material to be passed on, that, that techno technology wouldn't really yeah. be useful, would it? Yeah, so I think they did a bit of work on something which was like a like a virus that caused um sterility um in a, one sex or something um and then restricted to like the possum but i don't think that has been pursued as much i'm not quite sure i'm not well rehearsed in that research um but yeah that's that's the thing is that 
within our timeline, if we're looking for slow breeding species, we probably need something which is going to move a lot faster throughout the population. Um, whereas something like quick breeding like Rex is going to um, sort of, yeah, expand out. Yeah. And then again, again, another thing is to think about with this whole idea is that there are interactions between a lot of the introduced species. Um, so if you do, I don't know, use a genetic technology on rats and you remove those from the ecosystem, you're going to like release the, or like the stoats aren't going to have like those rats to eat. So they're probably going to turn more towards the native predators, um, native species. Um, and and so like it is a very complex dynamic and I think there's an interaction between possums and mice potentially based on food sources. So there's really some intricate um, sort of behavior things going on there. Trophic cascade. Yeah, trophic cascade, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and, and that's, that's another really important point is you can't kind of keep having a go at this because if you try and take out one species all at once and then you leave another, then you really are disrupting that whole ecosystem. And then you may in fact have, uh, as you've said, have the, the, the larger mammals or, or something else start going for it or, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. other unforeseen um, issues. Yeah, which... absolutely. It's, it's kind of like the, um, I guess one of the challenges is also mice. Like no one has, uh, like mice is a really tricky one, right? It's not one of the species in the plan for Predator Free 2050. But if you think about it, stoats and things, and also rats are like competitively controlling mice populate populations. Um, so you can imagine if you take those out of the ecosystem, the mice are just going to take off. Um, so that's another species that definitely needs to be thought about. Um, I think that's one of the interesting parts about the predator-free goal is, well, it's, you know, possums, stoats, rats, it's kind of obvious, but there's, you know, there is mice, there's cats, there's other animals as well. And I think, maybe there needs to be a, a bit better clarity around all of the different interactions and it's, it's kind of difficult yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, one, one of the other things to consider that we haven't talked about is the social license challenge, which is probably the, the first part, really. We're, we're kind of talking about things that currently don't quite exist but may be a potential tool but in terms of you, we've, you've kind of talked about how that that possibility there's not really any risk if, if we can design these technologies there's no risk that they would have other mutations or that they would be passed on to other species right that using yeah. CRISPR you're, you've got a targeted approach so you don't so that kind of eliminates the fear that you know there's unforeseen um, genetic issues but on and, and in, in terms of animal welfare that's also there's no there's no suffering you know it's not like a poison or a trap where they they may feel um pain they, they're just living their life and they're, they're infertile in this in this approach one of the probably more concerning ones would be around the sort of the biosecurity so you know if of these course, yeah. if these animals were to get out of new zealand and into another population, especially if they were um, native, like a possum, and it got back to Australia, and then they had other issues. But maybe, maybe not now if possums aren't uh, possible. <laughs> but but of course, with the rats, you know, the, the rats could, yeah. 
could be another one. Um, that's that's obviously a big concern, and that's something that we would have to really think about or look at. But I imagine other countries would be quite interested in getting rid of rats as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in their native range, you know, these rats are a huge economic toll um, on a lot of businesses um, and a lot of economies. Um, so there is, there is that real risk that people could um, sneak these out. But, I mean, it's about weighing up the risks, right? Um, the technology is kind of out there. Um, and it's, yeah, like it's um, about the purpose that you're wanting to use it for. But in terms of like containment, there's definitely a lot of research that needs to be done um, there. There is some talk about sort of creating molecular safeguards. So one of the ones is um, looking at if there's specific variations of our target genes that are specific to the New Zealand population um, that don't exist in other sort of native ranges um, so even if a a rat like did go from New Zealand back to its native range the system wouldn't work it wouldn't perpetuate because that variation of gene is just not found there um, another one that's talked about is using thresholds so you need a certain number of individuals in the population or certain, certain proportion of that population that contains the gene drive system before it will actually spread. Um, so if there's just a couple of individuals that goes um, back to an off-target population, it's just not going to spread because it's not reaching that threshold. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of research to be done here and a lot for us to learn. Is, is that And would that be just entirely because the population is too big and you wouldn't be able to spread? Yeah. With a few individuals, you, you wouldn't have enough of those yep. genes going into the offspring to cause it to really have an impact. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And there's also there's different there's different variations, um, and like sort of about what what um what genes are actually like driving which part of like this gene editing system in the DNA. Um, so yeah, but it's it's cool research. Oh, it's it's fascinating. One of the Probably the, the biggest question is in terms of the, the ethical component of all of this. Should we actually be modifying genetic material or playing God, um, if you like? Uh, it seems like people, when they hear words like genetic or nuclear, they kind of get nervous. But actually, the, the challenge is we haven't had a lot of information and had conversations like the one we're having today in the public domain. and given people the opportunity to learn about how these technologies might work and some of the advantages that they might have. And I think before we even do consider it, obviously there's still a number of steps to, to work through around whether or not these, these are safe, but we need to be having those conversations in the public space. Do you think it's advanced in recent times, or do you think we're still quite sort of fixed? It feels like there's still a lot of people, including a lot of the political parties that are reluctant to kind of get into this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think on an international scale, New Zealand is really lagging behind. Um, so countries like Canada um, is sort of allowing gene editing um, sort of processes and focus on the end product. So 
the end product is better than an outstanding um, or traditional product, then that's going to be like beneficial and it's like um, accepted. Um, and then Australia last year deregulated um, gene editing where um, you went in and made a change to the DNA, but it wasn't introducing any new DNA from another organism or another species. Um, so essentially, this is a huge food for thought like about what we define as genetic modification. Um, so like things like, so if you had an organism um, and you just transfer a gene from the same species into that genome or you make a single edit, like is that even a genetic modification when those genes are already found in that species? Um, and and so like that's one of the current um, challenges is sort of the disparity in definitions between um, different countries and considering that we do have a lot of trade with Australia, um, I think it's important that we start clarifying that. Um, and then also, you know, the technology has changed in the last 20 years since this legislation was developed. Um, and so it's completely like changed and some of it doesn't even hold water anymore. So this is definitely a conversation that we need to have and it's, and it's pressing from a lot of different contexts um, and from a purely environmental context, I think that we do need to be having this conversation about um, using it in pest control. And, and overseas, a lot of that would be with regard to food production in the first instance, wouldn't it? And, and I had Richard Newcomb from Plum and Food Research uh, talking, you know, and we, we kind of talked about it more from, from the food side of things. But again, you know, if we are doing these, these um, edits, it, it, it's, it definitely is different from, you know, inserting material or having other kind of unforeseen consequences. But this is the amazing thing that we still seem sort of stuck or reluctant to really have this big public conversation, you know, and there's a lot of voices in the science community now and others who are starting to, to kind of try and promote or encourage this conversation, but it still feels like um, yeah. decision makers are still very reluctant to, to have this public conversation and actually move on, especially with all of the other sort of environmental challenges that we face, be that for for food or for conservation or climate resilience or, or you know, even things like Cody dieback and myrtle rust, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, I mean, the hesitance is definitely from the fact that it is a very controversial topic um, and it's a very complex topic. Um, and it's likely that values and sort of perspectives are gonna differ between different contexts. So if you think about, it's like, medical application of gene editing so if there are so currently we have insulin therapies and um, some like cancer treatments that or antiviral drugs that are actually produced by genetically modified um, bacteria um, and people aren't necessarily going to have like or going to have could have less of a resistance to using those um, those products when it's actually their health like on the line um, and then again, there's going to be different perspectives with environmental use, um, and then again with food as well. So it's definitely a context-dependent conversation to have. Um, yeah. One, 
One of the other comments that I hear from from some groups is that it will impact, you know, New Zealand's brand or, or our kind of, you know, if you call it clean and green, I'm not sure people do anymore, <laughs> but um, the, the, the tourism brand or, or the, the, the clean, you know, safe products that we create in New Zealand and will doing something like this uh, negatively impact the brand and I, I think that's an interesting question because obviously I can't speak on behalf of the public looking into New Zealand or, and I imagine that's quite a, a mixed outcome as well. But again, it's about risk versus opportunity, isn't it? You know, is the amount of risk by using these technologies greater than the opportunity? And like anything, even with a vaccination, you know, one in a million people, I'm not sure if that's the right number, but, you know, will react to a vaccine, but it causes a lot more good than harm. And so if we look at using some of these technologies, then how much risk versus opportunity do we want to think about? And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how, how long it's take, how long it takes. And, and I don't know what it, what it's going to take to get these conversations really into the public domain and get that, that understanding a bit more widespread. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like we've got our clean green sort of image and like part of that is being GE free or engineering free. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, at what extent are we going to hold hold true to that GE free image, uh, like label, if maintaining that label means that we're sort of turning a blind eye to things that could actually even improve our clean green image even more so. Um, and like we could be doing like a complete like better job actually harnessing that tech um so there's lots of different um conversations to um to be had um and voices to be heard as well and i think probably like going forward there's definitely um we need to be having um discussions with like sort of the tangata whenua of aotearoa um because they are the like kaitiaki of these taonga species um and so it's vital that these voices are at the table um, in these decision-making processes um, and along the whole journey, like designing different components. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, our scientists, you know, we can provide the realistic sort of situations that we can help um, design, but it's going to be society that decides that if we use this tech, how we use it and how we design it. Um, so it's just, it's, it's definitely super important that we have these conversations early on. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's a fantastic way to, to end, I think. And thank you so much. And it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it's, it's really interesting how quickly it's evolving and how many new applications the, the genetic technologies may offer. I think, it really is almost more of a, a social problem than a, than a science problem in a lot of ways as well. And, and figuring out, you know, as a, as a public, you know, what, what do we want to do? But I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go well.